Hey, co-creative listeners. The podcast episode you're about to hear today was recorded nearly one month into the COVID-19 pandemic. Lots has changed since then, but the story and the lessons today's guest shares with us still resonates as they did, well, quote unquote, way back then. It's a bit surreal to take this little trip in a time machine with Dr. Richard Blundell, but I had a great time recording it and I enjoyed editing it again nearly 10 months later. I hope you enjoy today's episode. And if you do, please consider sharing with others on your favorite social media platform. But before we get into today's episode, a word from the co-creative. Did you know you can book a private tour of the art gallery at the co-creative? Head to cocreativenb.org and click book a tour or simply email Dina Hayden at Dina at cocreativenb.org. That's Dina at cocreativenb.org. Let her know you want to take a private tour of the art gallery. The artworks on display at the Co-Creative are the result of a collaborative and experimental project titled Into the Artmosphere, a call for art to change the climate of our minds. Beginning in the fall of 2019, the New Bedford artists Dina Hayden, Kat Knudsen, Chelsea Arruda, and Scott Deleuze convened over several weeks to explore the concept of ecological intelligence and artistic creativity. Based on a special curriculum designed by the ecologist Dr. Richard Blundell, today's guest, we recounted the entire scientific account of cosmic evolution and sought to place our personal and artistic sensibilities within that narrative. The result is a personal and natural history of art. The exhibition is on display at the Co-Creative Center through April 1st. All works are for sale and can be seen by that appointment. Go to cocreativenb.org and click on book a tour or email Dina, Dina at cocreativenb.org. That's Dina at cocreativenb.org. Let's get into the episode and I hope you really enjoy it. Who am I? What do I do? I'm just a surfer dude and a scientist and a guy who's kind of on a mission to do something meaningful in life and a guy who kind of loves nature. And yeah, that's, that's sort of what I'm about. Um, We're in trying times right now, right? I think a lot of people with coronavirus, COVID-19, were sort of locked in and said, you mentioned that you were maybe quite literally stranded away from the equipment that you normally have when you do shows like this. Have you, have you found a different purpose through this or has it just been emphasized? Mm. It's really just an extension of what I've been doing for the past few decades. You know, we're not just in trying times now because of the virus. We've been in trying times for, you know, the past 50 years in terms of the run-up to climate crisis and all of the new kind of social distress and just ecological issues, you know. So I think, but, but this time this whole virus situation has definitely thrown a wrench into everything some some in some ways good ways but yeah a lot of new challenges but i think it's it serves as a kind of inflection point for us mm-hmm. this, you know humanity in general yeah, yeah there are people who just, never there are people who never even you know are seeking purpose right so and i don't mean that in a bad way right there are folks who are just caught up in in life the day job, the family, the other external activities. How do you unwind from that? There's a lot of folks who never really think about purpose and what they really need in life. And I think right now, though it's volatile times, it's, it's certainly a time where maybe some people are stepping back and going, huh, 
I guess yeah. I, didn't, I didn't need that, you know, fancy car that I can no longer drive because it's illegal now, right? Or I need to go to this fancy restaurant every, you know, two or three times a week kind of thing. Like I think people are starting to reflect on what really matters to them. I've been trying to get people to, to have that conversation with themselves for decades with very little success. All it took was a tiny little virus to come through right. and do it in a big way. And it's mobilized the whole planet to kind of ask those questions. And I do think we're going to re reassess what matters during this time. And I think we'll come out better for it eventually. What methodology or what vehicle have you used to, to try to get that that message across or that story across to, to the folks to say, Hey, look, there's it, like you said, 50, we're, we're talking about five decades of self-evaluation here, society evaluation here. What vehicle have you used to try to get that story across to folks? Um, for me, it's all about nature. It's about looking to nature for guidance, insight, wisdom, all of those things and realigning with, natural systems as a kind of intelligence that we can that we can gain you know that we can witness in the world and also embody within ourselves so it's really about studying nature studying systems seeing ourselves as integral to those systems and manifesting the intelligence of nature in our work and that's that's kind that's really the root of this organization that I started called oika which is how I which is how I got involved with the co-creative center and and all that. So. Is that the foundation of all of your, and I guess in the literal and figurative sense, but is it the foundation of, of your creativity? Is that sort of where you pass everything uh, through? I know you do a lot with video production and, and we chatted earlier, you want to get more into maybe podcasting and audio creation, things like that. But is that where all things rich live? Yeah. Creativity is the core of it's a core or ecological insight. Nature is the great engine of creativity that we are all immersed in all the time. And so, again, if, if we're going to talk about creativity, I'm going to look to nature for that. And, and even broader than that, really, to, to the whole sort of cosmic story. A, a lot of what I do, a lot of what, what my research has been in is in the telling of the story of the universe, the natural history of the universe, which is in essence a story of creativity. And so, you know, and this is where it intersects with artists and creative communities is that if artists, for example, can tune into the creativity of nature, it can become an ally for them in their work. And it's a powerful ally. It's the most powerful force that we know of, the creativity of nature. Everything that we experience and exist in today is, is a result of that creativity. So if, if, if we're going to have a conversation about creativity, that's where I'm going to you know, turn to, is to, to, to look at nature and contemplate it and engage with it and participate in it in a creative way. Yeah, that is the core of Oika. Yeah, from, and I'm, I'm assuming, and I don't, mean to shift maybe your definition of creativity creativity from nature by any sense of the imagination but when we look around i'm looking around my desk right now right and i'm looking at my keyboard my mouse my iphone the microphone i'm using and maybe the computers or if you look around the sort of external urban world where you see cars and buildings people look at this stuff and they go wow this is it's, it's, it's really cool design that's a great looking car like design creativity 
in a sense, you're saying is, I mean, it, it all rooted, it's all rooted in nature, right? Everything yeah. comes from this. Well, and, and to really like feel that, to experience that, to understand it, well, you have to experience it as a story. Like the stuff that we normally think of as, you know, the modern sort of conveniences, the iPhone, the, the, the computer, the pencils, the whatever, all of it is part of the story of nature. Human creativity is, like I was saying, it's an extension of nature's creativity. So anything we create is, is a part of that, but, but it requires a story that people can identify with, literally. Like it requires a personal identity narrative to, to see and feel how everything around us is you know, the expression of nature. But once we tap into that, like once we understand that and feel that reality, we start to create an alliance with nature as opposed to isolated from it, or which we never are, but we feel isolated from it. And so the things that we create tend to further isolate us from it. And that's how we get into a lot of the problems we're in today is that separation from nature, that separation from reality, really. I know this is getting philosophical, but I, the, the point there being, and this is one of the most important sort of principles of, of ecological intelligence, is understanding the, the power of narrative and how personal narrative and the narrative of nature are continuous. There's a continuum of story from the Big Bang to this moment. And as artists express their creativity, they're actually just extending that story. I, this hard, I know it's hard to, to kind of grasp, but that's the work of Oika, is to get people, and, and initially through artists, through the work of artists, to feel that reality. Is there an initial jump off or starting point, if you will, for maybe even somebody who, you know, for years, Rich, and, and it's through Dina, actually, where I actually, you know, I, I've been doing podcasting for you know, seven or eight years now, but more in the technical space, like web development, marketing, business building, stuff like that. And I never really considered myself an artist, especially in the early days, right? It was sort of laughable for me to think that what I was creating, you know, was art. But over the years, as I feel like I've gotten just a touch better <laughs> than when I originally started, storytelling, connecting people, and, and of course, through ways of meeting Dina and, and just connecting with her, I now feel like a form of an artist, right? Because I'm constantly putting out content. I'm constantly reevaluating myself. Is there a jump off for somebody like me or somebody listening where it says, here's step one of identifying this, of identifying nature and how you connect that to the art that you create? Or is it just a whole other process that they have to be involved with? I think step one, and I don't mean to get dark here, but step one is to recognize that we are ill in a lot of ways. Like we are, our current, you know, way of living and relating to the world is unsustainable in many ways. And the coronavirus is, you know, it, it, it's an example of that. It comes from a kind of inappropriate treatment of animals and inappropriate sort of interactions with animals that ends up reflecting back at us through this disease. And that happens across scales that if you look at social inequity or just appalling politics or xenophobia, all these sort of social issues, 
they're all kind of telling us something that that something's wrong with the way we are experiencing engaging with and relating to the world and so i think the first step is to acknowledge that we've got work to do like we've got healing to do and once we can take that on board it becomes an opportunity to look out look differently see the world a little differently and that's kind of what this this whole quarantine thing is doing it's giving us an opportunity to sort of slow down and re-examine the world and the first step i think is just that sort of acknowledging that something's amiss you know climate change is around the corner and it's going to it's going to it's going to tell us this in very dramatic ways and so I think that's the first step. And the second step is being open to seeing the world differently. And I think we're kind of in that mode right now. And then it's really just about being more aware and contemplative about the way we observe the world and let it, let it sort of teach us and show us a new way that in the end will be much better. I don't think, I, I think by, by the end of this, we will have decided that many of the old ways that we were engaging with the world no longer serve us and they no longer bring us joy and so and we have found new ways of experiencing those things whether it's re-engaging with our family or with the nature outside or writing or creating or doing poetry or art you know we're going to we're going to want to keep those things that we're being forced to do now <laughs> i don't i'm interested to learn now about about oika a little bit more in depth folks who are listening you can find it at oika.com o-i-k-a.com oika.com and rich i'm looking at uh, the website as i do and you know reading the backstory i'm looking at the programs everything from oika arts to in the atmosphere to surfer's guide <laughs> it's interesting surf has come up twice in the, my mm -hmm. podcasting world recently also interviewing a gentleman by the name of chris anteo who runs Gnome Surf, which is a sort of a therapeutic program for children, young adults, and even adults who want to build confidence and therapy through surfing. So I'm interested to learn this backstory of Oika and where it all came from. Sure. Well, I can give you like the technical sort of blurb, which is we're a community of artists, storytellers, and media makers who seek to manifest ecological intelligence through our work to realign culture and nature so that's sort of the that's the the sort of textbook description but to really understand what what oik is about i kind of have to tell you a story about and it's a life story in a lot of ways but it's also an earth story basically back when i was a kid i grew up in you know southeastern massachusetts new england that environment has as you know just an incredible diversity of habitats from swamps to old cranberry bogs to woodlands to estuaries and marshes and you know bays and things like that and i spent my childhood i don't know how this happened because of my, i don't think of my mother as particularly negligent but somehow i just slipped through the cracks and i spent 98% of my time out there in the woods in the swamps getting lost, getting dirty, getting bloody, beat up, bruised, scraped. My, and, and I figured that was just normal, but that's pretty much, when you do that, you know, that kind of, this, these habitats get into you. You know, that, that swamp water gets into your blood. The glacial grit kind of gets into your teeth and you, you become part of these places. And that was what was happening to me. And I, what I know now is that 
I was a really sensitive kid. Like I was really sort of very affected by the things that I was experiencing. And that was just sort of part of my sort of developmental recipe was just this really sensitive, aware kid growing up, you know, just really immersed in nature. And that, you know, and then high school happened and being that kind of a kid doesn't really mesh well with education. And so I did not do well. I have, I have report cards from high school that are just D's and F's, you know, the whole semester. And then by the time my senior year, I got called into the guidance counselor's office and they said, Rich, there's 180 days in the school year and you've missed 110. So how do you explain that? Well, I've been out fishing and lobstering and doing all these things. And they were like, well, we're going to have to keep you back. Anyway, somehow I made it through. And, and, but, but after high school, without much commitment to education, one of the only kind of options available to me was to become a commercial fisherman. And so I started doing that, you know, lobstering. And that same kind of sensitivity that I had as a kid stayed with me. And I, I spent a lot of time with my hands, you know, in the mud, you know, digging clams and cleaning fish and just really immersed in the, the stuff of this nature and this community. And then I kind of worked my way through the ranks, went out further out to sea, started fishing more and more commercially. And one day... I caught my first bluefin tuna, and this was like an 800-pound, just behemoth of a creature. And I killed it. And as it was kind of dying on the deck, this thing happened where it kind of spoke to me. Kind of, as I was like watching it die, it was telling me that there was something wrong. You know, like it was essentially saying, what it felt like it was saying, stop, you know, like, and so at that moment, I stopped. I stopped fishing. It changed my life. That, it, was, it was an epiphany. And so somehow I got back into school and I, I wanted to study anything that would get me outside. So I went to, I studied geology and ecology and environmental science as an undergrad. To make a long story short, then I ended up getting a, a degree in the history and philosophy of science. And then I got a, ended up getting a PhD in cosmic evolution or big history. And so in the back of my head during that entire academic career, I was really, I had this sort of secret mission, which was to find out how that tuna could have communicated this thing to me. And it turns out that there are a lot of mechanisms in nature for that kind of commu- communication to happen. And you know, I won't list them now, but things like cybernetics and phenomenology, all these sort of you know, deeply technical and academic ways of understanding how a tuna can can communicate a message to a fisherman. And so I, I, I kind of figured it out. I think I figured out how that works. And so that's sort of the basis of the curriculum of OICA. But I think what I've also learned now as an adult, it's not so much how that tuna communicated, but what it was communicating. And what I've now sort of figured out is what it was saying to me was rich, don't lose that inner child. Don't lose that sense of wonder. Don't lose that sensitivity. Don't give it away to commercial fishing. Don't forfeit it to anything commercial. Don't, you know, try to retain it. And, and so in a way I, I have, I've been able to re-engage with that part of my, you know, personality. And that's kind of what drives Oika now is to share what 
that whole academic and experiential career has taught me about how communication happens in nature. And what I'm trying to do now is to bring it to artists. And here's why, because throughout my entire academic career as a scientist, not once was I ever asked to or forced to take any kind of art class. So I have had zero exposure to art history, art philosophy, the economies of art. Art for me was like a non-thing. I didn't even, I had no engagement with it at all because I was purely science. And if there's anything similar to that, like a mirror happening in the arts, in other words, if arts, people who study arts don't get engagement with science, that's part of the problem is that this disengagement between the arts and the sciences mirrors the disengagement between culture and nature. See, so it's like that's, and, and that I think is a, is a big problem and a big opportunity. If we can reconnect art with nature, science with culture, then, you know, we can make progress. So, so that's what, that's what Oika is. So it's, it's me bringing the lessons of what I've learned as a scientist and as a sensitive sort of kid and bringing it to artists as a new toolkit for them to express their creativity. And so, for example, that the idea of creativity itself, what I do is I, when I have a group of artists together, like I did at the Co-Creative Center, I tell them the natural history of art. So I, I can tell them the story of the universe, which is a story of nature, as it evolved throughout cosmic time, and how art evolved, how art emerged in the universe, and how the impulse of the artist, the creativity of the artist, is a natural phenomenon. And so it gives some artists, and again, this isn't for everybody, you know, I, I, some artists, I think, will never really get this. But those that do, they see it as a whole new, a whole new uh, way to produce like visionary breakthroughs. So it can really serve artists to expand their, you know, their capacities as artists. And so that's what I'm trying to do is that, that's, if there's an entrepreneurial slant to it, that's what it is. Fortunately, I, I don't have to be all entrepreneurial because um, I've managed to get some philanthropic funding to fund this work and actually to help support artists through this process. So that's what I'm able to do now through OICA and that's what it is. And that's what brought me to the, the Co-Creative Center last year to run a kind of experimental workshop with a group of co-creative members. So I'm sorry, that was a long way of explaining what OICA is, but I think it really shows that it's about how artists can re-engage with the natural world to enhance what they do. No, it's a it's fantastic. Many threads of thoughts and questions that I would I have. You know, one of them is, and I'll give you a moment to to catch your breath <laughs> because you were you, you were chatting for a bit. But you know, I, I'm curious if through your program so far, <clears throat> if you have uncovered other artists or other you know folks that you've engaged with to have their you know what I'll call their their tuna moment, right? Have have others come to you with a quote unquote tuna moment like you've experienced and and to give you just a, a breather you know i grew grew up very similar to you on the slocum river in, in in the dartmouth area same thing right pulling off mussels from the rocks digging for clams getting crabs out of the river things like that and i remember my father 
and I would go duck hunting when I was younger. And uh, he was always uh, a duck hunter for many years. And I had a similar reaction, again, just being a very young kid at the time. And, you know, my father, you know, killing a duck as one does during duck hunting. And, you know, it was all about the, the, the education process. It wasn't this, you know, I don't know how people take to it these days. It wasn't certainly not a violent sport. It wasn't out there and some kind of look what we did kind of thing. But he was teaching me about everything. And I remember him bringing, we killed two ducks that day or shot two ducks that day. And, and I remember bringing him home. And I was just like, probably just like you as a, as a young kid being, boy, I, I, this does not resonate with me. <laughs> you know, this act does not resonate with me. And I don't think it was as powerful as maybe your tuna moment, but my duck moment was something of a, like looking at the duck after it was, after we brought it home and just like, this is not something, you know, that I want to do. And I don't know if thinking back to it now in this moment, if that shaped more empathy in me, possibly. Either way, have folks brought this moment to you or, or, have, or do you try to uncover these sort of moments with, with your students through the program? I haven't had any reports of, you know, big life-changing epiphanies, but the content of, you know, the course that I run, it works on people in subtle ways. And then those ways accumulate, those changes kind of accumulate. And I think they resonate with what people already know. You know, I think people know... We, we all have that child within us. The problem is we're swimming upstream against a culture that takes it away, you know, that replaces that sense of wonder and awe, which as an adult turns into gratitude. We, we take that away through other narratives, narratives of success and accumulation of material wealth and, you know, all these things that are just part of the background noise. Well, those things tend to strip away what, what we know as what your, the inner child knows. And so that's kind of what Oika does too, is it, it, it seeks to give people permission to feel that again, you know, and to validate that as a useful, valuable, and kind of desperately needed quality to, to, re, to restore in our culture. I don't have, you know, specific, you know, actually they, they do happen, you know, like, I don't, maybe I'm just prone to epiphanies, but, and I've had many, but, the, but for example, this one artist that I was working with at the Co-Creator Center, Chelsea Aruda, who's a, you know, a animator and illustrator. And she and I just went for a walk in Berkeley and the magic happened, you know, like it, it, it doesn't often happen in groups, but in like small groups or when you're alone, you can kind of start to feel the light differently or there's a kind of vibration in the air. And we were walking this natural land and it just felt really right. It felt really good and everything was beautiful and we captured it and she captured in, a, in some of it in a video and she's put, put it on YouTube now. And we call those little moments when we share those experiences, when we share them publicly, they're called earth stories. And so what we're doing is we're telling these little stories of how we engage with the earth and how, you know, maybe a frog jumps and you see it and it makes you stop and admire the frog or, you know, a caterpillar goes by or a bird stops and sings or something like that. And if we can capture those things on our phones and 
or write a poem about it or take a picture or anything, any sort of form of artistic expression and, and share them publicly, then we're, we're telling our, our story as an earthling. So it's an earth story. But when you look at them collectively, they become the earth story as well. So a play on words, it's our earth story, but it's also the earth's story. And that's a really powerful insight when you realize that your story is the story of the earth. And when, and so when you, you know, when you create, you're really expressing the earth's creativity. And that, you know, that's kind of an adult version of the child's wonder. Like, and we can do that again. And we can, we can put it into the service of art making. And if, and if it really manifests ecological intelligence, if it, if it manifests the intelligence of nature, it will shift culture in a way that realigns culture and nature. That was phenomenal, right? And I, I don't even think I can follow up <laughs> the question to that. To that ending. There, there is, there's more than just us humans here. What other folks have to realize, and, and I think many folks now like you said, it's, it's been a thing for five decades or more at this point, obviously. This COVID-19 stuff has put things into light for yeah. many folks. And, and I hope that this story does help resonate with some. His name is Rich. You can find him at oika.com. You might actually find him around co-creative sometimes. Rich, should folks go to the co-creative? It's a loaded question. <laughs> Not right now. <laughs> yeah, right now, right. Not right now. When it opens. Well, yeah, absolutely when it opens. I hope to be doing more <laughs> more stuff with them in in the future. So anybody who's, you know, finds this interesting should follow up. Because right now I'm running it, I'm running the course online for free for anybody, which you can get to through oika.com. But but eventually when we're when we're all back to social cohesion, <laughs> we will hopefully do more at the co-creative center. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, Rich. Fantastic story. Everyone else, it's cocreativenb.org. I forget the NB at the top of the show. That's the magic of editing. I'll be able to go back and rectify that. It's cocreativenb.org slash podcast to get the links to this episode. So you might be listening to this as Dina sends it out on emails, Facebook posts, LinkedIn notes. But don't forget, cocreativenb.org slash podcast to click the links to subscribe in iTunes and all the major uh, podcast platforms. Don't forget to leave us a review. Tell your friends and family. It's the Co-Creative Center Podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody.